Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, Episode 10, Giving a Name to the Remains, Part 5. So today we're going to talk about Raymond Stanley Blackburn, who went by the name Ray. Ray was a 20-year-old construction worker who had come to Houston to work a construction job. He was from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. On June 15, 1973, he was attempting to hitchhike home to see his wife and newborn child. He was picked up by Dean Coral and was killed sometime that day. In Brooks and Henley's confession, both of them referred to Raymond as the Baton Rouge boy. His body was discovered on August 9, 1973, near Lake Sam Rayburn. An autopsy was performed by the St. Augustine uh, County Coroner's Office the day that his body was found. He was then later transferred to Houston and sent to the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office for another autopsy. When he was found, his hands and ankles and mouth were all duct taped. He had a cord around his neck. They determined that the cause of death in Ray's case was strangulation. So how come they would have done an initial autopsy in the county that he was found in and then sent him off for another autopsy? So all the bodies that were found at Lake um, Sam Rayburn were autopsied initially by the Augustine County um, coroner's office there. But because they were finding some discrepancies with the autopsies, they went ahead and autopsied all of the individuals. And also the reason that they did that was to help with identification. Okay. So because these were all unidentified remains, some for longer periods than others. And so it was really to help with the identification process, but then they were clearing up some initial problems and stuff that had come up. I mean, I think we talked in an earlier episode about originally one um, autopsy came back as strangulation. And then when they x-rayed the body, they actually found that that individual had been shot. So this was really kind of also to get, they had decided that they would go forward with trial, so it was to really batten up all of those things. Right. It's just to kind of like cross all yeah. the T's, all and, the Y's. And if you'll remember, these autopsies were done, um, performed not in like the sterile coroner's office that you would kind of think. They were actually performed in a dilapidated shed behind the um, uh, St. Augustine funeral home. Right. And part of that was unfortunately because of the decomposition. That and they didn't have necessarily all the resources they didn't, available, right? They didn't, yeah. So uh Raymond was tentatively identified by 
um, police by his driver's license photo. They then informed his father who came to identify his body. He did so by noticing that there was a notch in um, a tooth and said that that's how he could recognize his son. His father, Reed Blackburn, was a Pentecostal minister in Baton Rouge. And he said that he harbored no ill feelings toward the men who had killed his son, saying, I would rather be the father of my son than the parents of those boys. I know. And, you know, when we went over this and were discussing it, it's just how raw of a truthful statement could that possibly be? You know, he later went on to kind of expand on that about how difficult this was on the family's of both Henley and Brooks family to have this come to light that they were dealing in this. And, um, you know, this is, it's again, another sad case of a 20 year old who has life ahead of him, um, was excited about being a father. And, um, but I think his father probably puts it best, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, honestly, as a parent, both are really terrible positions to be in as a parent of your child but i can't imagine having a child that would inflict that much on another child essentially right Right. that causes such harm and death well and i think but in both um brooks and henley's case there was a lot of denial by those families for a long time trying to grip with with the reality that they were given you know um and then having to deal with your son spending life in prison. Um, one of the things that we actually covered in an earlier episode was that Henley had asked for compassionate release um, from the prison system. And we kind of talked about the fact that maybe Henley... And that, and that was this year. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. this year. That, um, Henley probably had um, some medical problems going on. And so that's why he's asked for compassionate release. They have not released what his medical problems are, but he's asked for that possibly because he's terminal at this point. And just recently they came out and um, his compassionate release was denied. So he will actually die in prison. William Ray Lawrence went by the name Billy. He was a 15-year-old eighth grader at Booker T. Washington Junior High School. He worked weekends with his brother and father at the Post. It's like the Houston Post. It's a newspaper mailroom putting together the weekend paper. He was last seen alive by his father on June 4th, 1973. That night, he called his father and said he was going fishing with some friends. He did not say who. His father said that he um, knew that his son had several friends and he thought that one of them's name was Wayne. Billy had um, learned to play the guitar and like most boys his age, he had dreams of going on tour with a band. He had been telling his father that he was in a band, but he never told him who he was in this band with. He said that he would return later in the week. On June 11th, his father, James, received a letter from his son, postmarked June 8th. It said, Dear Daddy, 
I've decided to go to Austin because I have a job offer. I am sorry I decided to leave. I had to go. I hope you understand that I had to go. Daddy, I hope you know I love you. Your son, Billy. So if I can just interrupt there for just like one second. One sort of thing that keeps coming up as we discuss the boys and who's been missing is that odd phone call that's right. kind of made. So, and in some cases, the letters, yeah. the letters, the phone calls, you know, like I'm going swimming in Freeport or, you know, I'm taking off to Austin, whatever the case may be. That's what do you think like a uh, Dean's way of deterring such, I guess, extensive searching for the lost boys right. like early on. Okay. So it seems like Dean Coral was forcing these boys to write these letters or make these phone calls in order to continue this whole idea that these boys were runaways. Right. It's it's definitely to hide the crime. Okay. And so then when you talk about like the letters being postmarked, so in this case with this with this boy, it says June eighth, right? Is that the day it's stamped at the post office or is that dated when they wrote it? So it's the day that it's stamped. It's the post office receiving it. Um, and with this case, um, Billy's father doesn't report his son missing. So I don't know how much scrutiny was given to the postmark. I don't know how much scrutiny was given to the postmark of any of these cases because these families did have these letters. This one, this letter doesn't... Um, end up in law enforcement or as far as we know doesn't end up being given to law enforcement so that scrutiny of looking at that postmark to see where he actually sent that from and but on these other cases it doesn't seem like that was also given that scrutiny either and i don't know if if that's a because those older letters may not have had where they were sent from but i'm thinking that they did have like the place so when you go in and you give a letter to the post office, they'll, they'll basically do that cancellation stamp on it, which is the postmark that says they've received it. And that shows where they've received it. But again, in this case, even if his father looked at it and said, well, this came from Houston, he could have thought his son sent it before leaving, you know? Right. And I don't remember though, like, um, mostly this is early 90s like a good friend of mine was in military school so i would get letter we just exchange letters back uh -huh. and forth and i remember looking at the postmark like ooh, when they see it send it when was it processed like how many days did it take it i mean that's like little kid stuff but right. you know i remember looking at that specifically like it had importance yeah right and so i don't know if that was just an oversight with the police department or just wasn't Unfortunately, into, yeah. I guess, you know? Unfortunately, in this case, um, what we do know about this case is that Billy's father didn't report his mm -hmm. son missing. So I don't know if later when they came back and said, you know, said to him, you know, we think your son is part of this. If they, he s told them, well, I had a letter and whether or not he still had the letter at that point, it would, wouldn't have been important mm -hmm. anyway to look at that postmark. It's just um other families had received those and i don't know how much scrutiny mm -hmm. had gone into those in the postmark again investigators were really looking into these kids as being runaways 
And so what Cora was doing with having them write the letters was actually working. Well, yeah, it was confirming the police's initial thoughts on that, right? right? And then, of course, you know, like we said in the beginning of this season, this is one of the first, like, serial murder cases that's so prolific. So, um... And yet, even at this point in time, Dean Coral is doing things to throw police mm-hmm. off of the trail of finding these kids or even coming to the conclusion that some harm had gone mm-hmm. into them. And he had to know at least some parental units or some family members were going to be looking for these kids, right? Right. Or you wouldn't go through all the effort. And it's definitely premeditated, so... He already knew what he was doing. And the pressure, especially by the time that Billy goes missing, is really on. Because we have posters of other kids that are showing up in the neighborhood. We have parents. The Hildegrass parents are actually actively looking and knocking on doors. You know, at this point, his car license plate number was turned over to police. They just weren't investigating it. Um, But with this case police weren't even really given the chance to look into this case just because his father thought his son would come back. And so, um, and I think his father was also trying to uh, protect his son. Right. Because one of the other things that happens here is a few days after the letter arrived, the house that they all lived in was actually broken into. Several items were stolen from that house. All of those items belonged to Billy. They were a radio, camera, and a couple of guns. Billy's father did not call the police and report the break-in either, because he thought whoever had broken into it knew exactly where those items were located. And so he was pretty sure that it was his father. I mean, his son. Sorry about that. He was pretty sure that it was his son. And he knew that his son had would smoke marijuana occasionally and also thought that his son was possibly on pills. Right. And, you know, I, I do remember, like, pre-discussing this with you. And I'm like, how would his father assume it was a break-in? I know that sounds kind of weird, but if you're assuming that your son is the one that's coming in there and taking these items, wouldn't he have access to the home? So when I asked you, like, what makes it, quote-unquote, a break-in now, you know... Yeah, so they don't go into a huge amount of detail about the break-in to the house, but it was relatively evident when the father got home that somebody had been in the house and taken items. Most of those items belonging to the son. Um, later, another thing that I ran across said that the that some of the items belonged to the son, but the guns actually belonged to the father. So that might have been at the point in time that he was like, he might have noticed his guns missing or the, you know, the door left open or something. And I guess maybe part of you is like, something's going on with my son he's on drugs and so he's breaking into my house you know he doesn't even realize that he would have access to it maybe he's thinking he lost his keys or something or maybe he did lose his keys and maybe yeah um and so he's i think in a lot of ways he's being a very protective father So this case is one of those cases that we have a lot of information given from one of the confessions. So in Brooks's confession, he says that he called Coral's home on the 10th. 
and that Henley answered the phone and he's talking to Henley and he says to him, is anyone there? And Henley told him, yes. And then Brooke says, it's not a friend, is it? And at that point in time, Henley becomes kind of cagey with him and says, sort of. I guess Brooks is really fearing that, you know, his friends, he's losing friends. And so he proceeds to go over there because he said Henley would not tell him who it was. So he went over there. He said that um, he got over there and he did see that Billy was there that he was still alive when he got there. He was tied to the bed. He recognized him as a friend of um, Henley's and he said the boy wasn't doing well. He didn't have any clothes on. I don't remember calling him by a name, but I had been shown a picture of him in. So he's saying I'm showing a, shown a picture of him now that he's making the confession. And that's the boy that I saw that day. Um, and he said, in fact, he said, I've seen the same picture of him before at Dean's house. So this gets a little confusing because I'm not real sure if this goes to that fact that we know that Dean had a, um, that Henley had a Polaroid. So I'm wondering whether or not he's trying to say that there, he had also seen pictures of him. Well, I'm prior. wondering too, like, um, did the police have that photo from a search on the property. So what the photo that, that he's talking about, that Brooks is talking about being presented to him while he's making this confession is actually that they went into the confession with Brooks and Henley with pictures of missing children and would put those pictures in front of him and say, do you know about this child? And that's where they get this confession where he's like, now that I'm looking at this picture of him, I remember that I called the house and, and this all happened. So it's like trying to like figure out again, identification of these bodies that they're being found. So they're bringing out these missing persons files, presenting them to Brooks and Henley to try to figure out who these um, kids are possibly and who had possibly had run-ins with Coral. Right. And so that's, that's how they get the picture in this, but he's talking about that he had seen a picture of him at another time. So I, that, that's a very confusing part of this confession. Um, he also, he goes on to talk more about, um, that he was there, that, you know, he wasn't doing well. And he, then he's like, I, um, decided that I was going to go to bed. And so I went to bed in the opposite bedroom before I did go to bed in the opposite bedroom. Uh, Coral asked me to take, uh, Wayne home. He said that, um, Henley's mom had called, she had been drunk and she was insisting that Wayne Henley come home and Brooks, I guess, didn't want to take Wayne Henley home. So he asked Wayne to pay him $10 in order to take Henley home. He then comes back to Coral's house. Billy is still there. He's coming back in order to get the $10. You know, this is what gets me, and I, I don't mean to really interrupt right. you on this thought no, process, you're fine. but it, it's, like, so crazy to me, because as much as you want to play, like, I was victimized, and I was kind of groomed into this, like, you didn't have to go back. Like, why would you go back? 
you know, and then go sleep there. Right. I just across the room and this isn't a big home. So, I mean, it's literally probably across the hallway. Right. How, how, how can you override that mentally and just go to sleep? Like, I, I don't know if I could, I'd be like, what's that noise? What's going on? What is this? What is that? But I can't override that part of me to shut off when something bad is happening. Well, and I still think in this part of this confession, this whole thing about this $10, there's more to this here. Like he's trying to distance himself from having anything to do with helping Henley get Billy to this house. But when you're talking about being paid the money, it seems to me that he might have had more to do with this. Like how? Like he might have been involved more in this abduction. And so that's why he's wanting to get paid. $10. Well. Even in the 70s, $10 wasn't that much. No, but in other confessions, he does state that. Yeah, but they were supposed to be getting paid a lot more than $10. They were supposed to get paid a lot more than $10, but he does make in his confession. It's the principle. I mean, come on. Come on. I don't know. In his confession at one point in time, he said the only thing he ever got paid for bringing boys over was $10. No I mean, I know that I know that some of that's not true because he does get the car and different other things that and he the is. the TV and all right. that weird stuff, yeah. Um, but I just think that he's got more to do with this he's trying to distance himself from this but he's got more to do with this um he says that the next day they all decided that they were going to go to the lake which is sam lake sam rayburn um that he believed that billy was alive at that point in time they left around 6 p.m to go to the lake and that when they left around 6 p.m. that Billy was dead in the box in the back of the vehicle. So he does say he never left the house. He was there that entire time. He went to sleep that night, got up the next morning. He's saying that Billy was alive at that point in time. But then by the time they leave at 6 p.m., you know, Billy is dead. So he is there during the time that billy is killed yeah or eventually um, comes succumbs to his wounds or right right he says i do not remember how he was killed i don't know if i saw it or not but he said it doesn't bother me because i saw it done so many times you know he said i just wouldn't have done it myself <laughs> well good for you so they go up to the lake. There's a lot in the confession about um, going to the lake, going, leaving Billy in the vehicle in the box, going in, going to sleep, then the next morning getting up around 6.30 a.m., going fishing, then coming back. And at that point in time, Dean Corral says he's found a spot where, where to bury Billy. And he says he's already started digging. And then... Brooks said he hadn't dug much. And so Wayne and I got back from fishing. We ate some, and then we went and dug the grave and um, put Billy in it. You know, what's really weird to me about this confession is the amount of details that come with it. Right. You know, cause there's so many other confessions that they make that are so big, like, oh, I can't remember who that is or 
but I know it was a boy or, you know, whatever right. the thing is. But this is like, you can tell us basically what you had to eat before you did this. Right. And he can, he, and with this confession, he definitely brings this down to times. I mean, you know, we went fishing from 6.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then we went back and then he had already mm -hmm. picked out the spot. I mean, he's very, very detailed in mm -hmm. this confession. So for whatever reason, this is memorable. Right. This this incident is memorable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, then he talks about the fact that when they dug the grave, he had to go back, um, that the body was wrapped in plastic wrap. They buried him in the um, grave, but then he had to go back to the van. It's now dark to get car the carpet and the flashlight. The carpet they were using to shovel the extra dirt on and take someplace else because they didn't want a mound to be showing. Um, he said he almost took too much dirt off and that Dean uh, Coral griped at him for a while about it, telling him that he had to do a better job. <laughs> for next time. Yeah. Well, you know, the, um, and again, you're right. It does seem like um, this, there's a lot of memory in here from him. And it could possibly be that they're just sober. You know what I mean? Because he's talking about how they slept till five o'clock and then they went and did this. And, you know, I mean, it could possibly just be. But you notice one thing with the confession. I mean, he remembers all of this down to the times and that he took too much dirt off, but he can't remember the killing of Billy. Because you know? he wasn't. And that could be self-preservation. I mean, that could True. be um, that he blanks that out because he's that's self-preservation but he is saying it didn't it wouldn't have bothered him because he's seen it all before i mean <laughs> i can't i don't know so billy's new body was found at lake sam rayburn officers had taken um henley to lake sam rayburn they drove drove around for a while henley stopped got out and showed them a big log on the side of the road and said i think this is where we buried billy lawrence Joseph Pruitt, the medical examiner from St. Augustine uh, County, I'm sorry, Angelina County medical examiner, used a picture from the newspaper to compare to the decomposed body of Billy Lawrence to identify him. Due to the photo and the body had perfect teeth, he said he could tell that it was unusual for a 15-year-old child at this point in time to have perfect teeth, and so that's how he identified Billy Lawrence. The cause of death was um, said to be strangulation as of, as there was a cord still tied around the boy's neck. Sadly, Billy Lawrence's father learned of his son's death, not from the police, but instead from the newspaper reporting on it. Mm. So, this is the one case, though, that David Owen Brooks would go on trial for and be convicted of. And this is where... You know, the confession comes in, he puts himself at the scene and never leaving. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so at that point in time, he's there. He's as much of an accomplice as he had strangled him himself. Right. Because they could have stopped it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know. I mean, he left and came back, for heaven's sake. So, But at the time that he says he left and came back, he said he was still alive. So he... But he knew what the fate of that child was. Right. So, I mean, this, he's seen it too many times that it didn't even bother him. He's admitting to that, so. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. 
We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.